Let me begin today by telling you just how super excited I am that we're in the fourth week of this really fascinating series called Explore God. And if you're just joining us, let me do a quick review. We kicked off this series, which we call Dealing with Life's Big Questions. Can somebody say big questions? Yeah, we kicked this series off a few weeks ago looking at the question of purpose in life. We followed it up with uh, engaging the question, is there a God? And last week we asked, well, why does God allow such pain and suffering? Now, if you missed any of those teachings, please go to our website, check out those teachings. If you find them to be helpful and effective, man, share them with your family and with your friends. Today, we're going to raise the question and tackle the challenging question of, is Jesus God? And next week, which I can't wait to get to, I want to talk about the question. It'll be a critique of our own faith. Is Christianity too narrow? So make sure you're back in San Jose or watch this online next week. But today, uh, before we jump into today's message, where we're looking at, is Jesus really God? I just want to take a few moments and just say a word of welcome. I, I, I want to welcome those of you who, for the very first time, this is your first time with us in San Jose or online, or maybe you've been with us for several weeks over the course of this series. Maybe uh, you are a longstanding Christian, or maybe you're a person of another faith, or maybe you have, you're, you're not a person of faith at all. Whatever category you're in, welcome. We are delighted that you are with us. I'm going to tell you what. We work really hard to be a community that is very faithful and living out our faith in Jesus Christ. But we also work very hard to be the kind of community that wherever you are along your faith journey, that we can come alongside of you, that this is a safe and loving community for you to explore and take your time and ideally move towards God. So welcome, welcome, welcome. All right, let's jump into reading our passage as we look at this question, is Jesus God? It comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 16. And here's what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he said to them, well, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, uh, that's where the passage ends. We'll talk about Jesus' response in just a minute. Praise God. This passage begins with Jesus is towards the end of his ministry. He's been ministering in public. He's at a public ministry for about three and a half years now. He's Passing through uh, Caesarea Philippi, he's en route to Jerusalem. Waiting for him in Jerusalem is a Roman crucifixion. And so it is the right moment for Jesus to ask the question to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, referring to himself? And, of course, they give him a variety of answers, kind of like a market survey, if you will. Well, some people say maybe you're the reincarnated John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, or one of the uh, other prophets. In other words, we don't really know, but you're kind of different, you know. <laughs> Somebody say different. <laughs> but notice, not in any of those answers did anybody ever say, well, some folk actually think you are God. No, that's missing. And then he makes it personal. Who do you say I am? He turns to them and asks that question. Who do you say I am? 
That is the very heart of our discussion today. Who do you, those who are Jesus followers, who do you, those who are exploring or thinking about it, who do you say Jesus is? Now, this is a fascinating question to ask his disciples because, man, they've been with him for three and a half years. They've been with him in public. They've been with him in private. They've been with him. They've heard people talk about the impact of his ministry, beginning with his teaching. They heard people say again and again how his teaching uh, when he taught, it was with even greater authority than the temple rabbis were. They, they, they were with him when he was working miracles of love, feeding the hungry, come on, healing the sick and the broken, uh, creating space around him for women and the marginalized to be elevated. They were with him even as he exercised authority over demons, demonic evil in the lives of people. And so he said, well, who do you think I am? Simon Peter, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, basically saying, you're right. <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not the byproduct of how intellectually deep you are. <laughs> this is the result of revelation. It was revealed to you by, not by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. Can you say revelation? See, at the end of the day, in order for you and I to come to the conclusion that Jesus is God, if in fact you should reach that conclusion, it requires a couple of things. It requires what I've been talking about earlier, that we have to choose open doubt over closed doubt. You remember I talked about that over the last few weeks. Closed doubt is where you say, well, I don't care what you tell me. I'm not going to believe it. Open doubt is, well, if you can walk inside of my experience and show it to me, I'll believe it. Secondly, it requires reflection uh, and thinking deeply about the question. And then thirdly, uh, it ultimately requires God interacting with you, which from which we get this word Revelation. Can you say revelation? So today, I'm not going to work super hard to try to convince or persuade anybody regarding the answer to the question. What I really want to do is to facilitate my prayers that I'm able to facilitate space, either during the teaching of this message or weeks and months later, with the work of the power of God in your life for revelation. And I'm actually are praying that you will receive three revelations today. And these revelations are not just about folk who are non-believers. It's about folk who are also believers. All right? So let's get started with this. Let's use Jesus' framing as the framing for our, the rest of our time together. So let's revisit the question. Who do people say I am? Here's how I want to reframe that particular question today. How does history answer the question who is Jesus? And here's the history's answer. That Jesus is one who has had unparalleled influence on shaping the Western culture and the world. My good friend John Ortberg has written a fascinating book. I commend it to you. Please go check it out. Uh, we'll have it on, our, on, the, on the page of this message. It's simply called, Who is This Man? He's referring to Jesus. And the full title is, who is this man? The unpredictable impact of an inescapable Jesus. And one of the points that John makes in that book, this book is that in Jesus' day, when people like uh, Alexander the Great and, and uh, 
uh, Caesar Augustus and Aristotle and others, famous people, when they die, the further you get away from their death, the less influence they have. For Jesus, it was the reverse. Uh, he died as a son of a carpenter, as a, some people refer to as a country preacher. His crucifixion on a Roman cross left his followers demoralized and frightened and afraid. And yet six weeks after that crucifixion is 10,000 people claiming him as Lord and Savior. 2,000 years later, there's 2.3 billion people across the world worshiping and adoring and following this one called Jesus. As a matter of fact, the influence of Jesus' life is inescapable when it comes to the Western world. It is Jesus' followers following his lead who, you know, Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me. It is Jesus' followers who give us orphans and foster care. It is Jesus' followers who invent and create what we now call hospitals and hospice care and tons of relief efforts throughout the world. It's Jesus' followers who've taken words like humility and grace and mercy and transformed them into cultural virtues. It is Jesus' followers who gave birth to Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and Princeton. As a matter of fact, the entire Western education and this whole notion of universal literacy that we have here in this country was, came as a result of Jesus' followers, following the one who says, you should love the Lord thy God with all of your intellect, your mind. And matter of fact, uh, the uh, Yale historian says this about Jesus' impact. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. And if it was possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? He impacts literature. He impacts music. Come on. Uh, even the cemetery uh, is given to us as a result of Jesus' followers taking an old Greek word that meant dormitory, turn it into cemetery, which suggests resurrection. People are resting, sleeping temporarily. So, I go through all of this to make this point. Here's my first revelation. Listen in now. If somebody's sitting next to you, say, lean in. Check this out. Don't allow your, if you can't believe that Jesus is God. Okay, set that aside. Don't allow that to be a stumbling block. I want to challenge you to try following Jesus anyway. You see, the reality is that most of the folk who were following Jesus, as we look at the text that we just saw, most of his disciples, who, towards, they, didn't, they didn't conclude that he was God until on the other side of his resurrection, reflection and revelation. So, set it aside. You don't, he didn't have to set the whole deity piece aside. Internalize, learn his, what he taught, internalize his value. If he revolutionized culture, isn't it possible he could still revolutionize your life? That's the first revelation that we have. All right, let's move forward. Who do people say I am? Jesus says. Well, let me reframe it again. Who did Jesus say he was? How does Jesus answer this question? We see John 10:30 records his answer very clearly. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. By the word one, he simply meant the same nature, the same essence, that when you see me, it's the Father standing in your 
presence. Now, the people who he was talking to, they got that very clearly. Notice the next verse. Uh, again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. And, and, the, and he intervenes and says, listen, guys, why do you want to stone me? Is it because of the good works that I've done? Here's their response. We're not stoning you for any good works, they reply, but for blasphemy. Because you, a merman, claim to be God. That's why we're stoning you. And ultimately, that is the charge that causes the Jewish community to turn him over to the Romans. That leads to his crucifixion. So he said repeatedly, I am God. Forgot that. Now, let's get a little closer. Notice he goes from who do people say I am to who do you say I am. Before I leave that last point, I'll say this. He says repeatedly, I am God. C.S. Lewis, and I just offer this for your consideration. This is not a heavy-handed push here. C.S. Lewis, uh, who was an atheist, who became a Jesus follower, one of the great defenders of the faith in the 20th century. Uh, here's what he says. Jesus says repeatedly he's God. He says either Jesus is a lunatic or a liar or he was who he said he was. He says that as we wrestle with the question of who is Jesus, this is one frame we have to make sure that we're able to process through. I offer that for your consideration. Now, who do you say I am? One of the passages that have shaped my life so powerfully is Acts 1.8. As Jesus articulates this on the other side of his resurrection, just before he ascends back to heaven, and here's what he says. He used this passage to even call me into ministry. Here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Can you say power? And you will be my witnesses. Can you say witnesses? Witnesses. Telling people about me ever. Now, here's what he means. That I'm going to empower you through my spirit. To As you go about, I want you to tell stories. I want you to tell the stories about who I am in your life and share your experiences from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. And I'm going to add my spirit to the telling of your stories and it's going to create space for reflection and revelation. So here's the second revelation that is directed to those of us who are committed to be Jesus followers. Leave this message committed to share your Jesus' stories and experiences with your kids and your grandkids and your parents. Listen, kids, listen, everybody, check this out. You should never force or impose your faith on anyone, but neither should you be afraid or ashamed to talk about your faith in the context of telling your story. Just like you would talk about anything. Listen, I've given, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to uh, high school public assemblies over the years. Uh, and inside of all of those moments, I tell my story. And at the heart of my story is who Jesus is in my life and how he took a kid that was about to flunk out of school and would have ultimately ended up either in prison, strung out on drugs, or in a graveyard and turned my life around and ended me up here speaking to you. Took me from special education to Harvard Divinity School. Jesus did that. And I always would frame it by saying, I'm not trying to proselytize. When this part, this is just my story. So let me share my story. I want to challenge those of you who are listening to me today. 
man, let's do a little bit more sharing the stories of what Jesus has done, not just in the church community. But if you're a CEO of, a organiz- of a, a company, you're an educator, if you're a short order cook, when it comes up, when you're talking about your story, don't leave Jesus out. Share it. All right. Let me ask the question again. So who do you say Jesus is? Well, when it comes to witnessing and sharing story, I, I want to offer to you how a devout atheist answered this question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And really what I want to do for the rest of this time is just simply share his story. Now, the guy that I want to talk about, uh, name is Lee Strobel. He wrote a book, best-selling book in the, in the 80s called The Case for Christ. And uh, early on, when he was uh, in the context of writing this book, uh, he was an award-winning investigative journalist who worked for the Chicago Tribune. Tribune. And not only was he trained to be a journalist, he also had earned a law degree from Yale University. So here's what he would say, that he was trained to be skeptical, and he was surrounded by skepticism. One of the stories that he tells, it's a funny story, but it's true, he says. Listen, he says, uh, on the Tribune wall, they had a sign that said, if your mama says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> Whenever I think about that, I can't help but think about the song that B.B. King uh, used to say. He used to say, uh, don't nobody love me but my mama, and she could be driving me too. Can you say skepticism? <laughs> so not only was he skeptic, but he was an atheist. He was skeptical about religion and certainly did not believe in Jesus. And here's, and here's what he says. He says his skepticism ultimately bubbled into cynicism, which locked him into atheism. And later on, he would describe this, this kind of dual life where he was celebrated publicly for his investigative uh, powers and success, But privately, he had another side. And here's what he says about that other side. He says, so, you know, I lived a very immoral, drunken, profane, narcissistic, self-absorbed life. Really self-destructive in a lot of ways. That was my life. What people saw was me winning investigative reporting awards. What they didn't see was the other side, which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday nights. Wow. Later on, he talks about this rage that he had within. It was always under the surface. I wonder if there's somebody listening to me that this is resonating with you. It was always under the surface. Here's what he says. He says, I had so much rage inside of me, so much anger, and if you had asked me back then, what's the deal? Listen, why are you so angry? I couldn't have told you. But looking back, I discovered what it is. I was always, always after the ultimate, the perfect high. I was always after the ultimate experience of pleasure. But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So, I had a lot of rage. This is Lee's story. I wonder if his story resonated with anyone that's listening me today. And he tells, he gets a little bit more graphic here. He says, one day he came home. He was drunk, angry, upset. And he said, 
that he kicked a hole in the wall. He says, after that day, every day thereafter, when he came home, his little four or five-year-old daughter named Allison, when he would walk into the house, she would just pick up her toys, go into the other room. She didn't want to be around. This is his story. He says a little while later, his wife ended up going to church and becoming a Christian. Her name is Leslie. And when he found out about that, he hit the roof. He said, like, I didn't marry you for this. He started thinking about divorcing her. But then over time, she began to change, and it was attractive to him, you know, how she interacted with the kids, how she interacted with him. But at some point, he concluded, you know, I've got to rescue her from this cult called Christian church. I've got to get her out of here. And what he, what he concluded was, he says, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just prove this whole Jesus thing, which is really tied to his resurrection, is all a hoax. And he's like, I'm the best investigator. I've won awards for investigating. Listen, I can figure this out. I can prove this in two weeks. I'm going to disprove, beginning with the resurrection, the central event. Now here, guys, let me just point this out. At the end of the day, the central event that underscores uh, the Christian faith that Jesus is God is, in fact, the resurrection. Here's what Paul says as he thinks about it. And if Christ has not been raised then all of our preaching is useless. And I talked to you about 2.3 billion people who are following Jesus today. Well, check this out. He says, this is what Paul says, and all of their faith and all of our faith is useless. Lee understood that. He got it. So he started to investigate, and what he thought would take only two weeks ultimately turned into a two-year journey of flying across the country, talking to doctors and psychiatrists, talking to theologians. He writes this whole book about it. I commend, go, go get the book. It's packed with all of the archaeologists and the other studies that was done. And after two years, he came to a different revelation. Now, let me just summarize what was the experience, and I'm doing high levels way more, but what was it that caused Lee, an atheist, to be positioned to have a revelation that put him in the same space that Peter was in when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, if he was here, Lee, he would tell you that there's four E's. Can you say four E's? There was four E's that emerged during two years of investigation that actually solidified for him and positioned him for a revelation of who Jesus was. The first thing he had to do was to conclude that when he read the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, that what he was looking at was ancient historical writings that could be collaborated by four to five other external sources when it came to Jesus and Jesus' followers. Sources like Josephus and Tactus and others who were not Christians. And so the first E, that really moved him closer, he says, is the word execution. Can you say execution? The question was, did Jesus really die? Well, here's what the scriptures proclaim. John writes this. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. This is Jesus hanging on the cross. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, 
pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. Now watch these words. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. This is John who's writing this. He's actually standing at the foot of the cross. He speaks the truth, John writes, talking about himself, so that you also may continue to believe. And so, Lee talks about there was a lot of speculation. There still is a folk who say, well, maybe he didn't die. Maybe he just went unconscious. And then later on, he became conscious again. And folk thought it was a resurrection. So he talked to doctors. They looked at a variety of different things and ultimately concluded, no, 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 no. Jesus was dead. Dead. Can you say dead? Execution. The second E is really the word early. Can you say early? He's talking about early evidence tied close to the time of Jesus' death. For him, the question was, is this a legend that has grown over time? And in his investigation, he discovered that it usually takes somewhere between two to 400 years for legends to form. But embedded actually in the writings of Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, is a creed that Paul received somewhere between somewhere around three years after Jesus' death, around the time of Paul's conversion. It, we have that creed contained in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Lee discovered as he talked to scholars. And here's what it says. I pass on to you, meaning Paul received it. He actually received it from Peter and James. I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to him, Paul. And then here's the creed. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, and most of whom are still alive, meaning, stop, you can go ask people, they're still around, you can go check this out, okay, go ahead, <laughs> though some have died. Then he was seen by James, which is the brother of Jesus, big deal, come back to that in a minute, and later by all the apostles, and last of all, as though, Paul asked this, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul says, I am a witness. The scholars date this creed. They say it can be as close to as four months after the death of Jesus to as many as three years and somewhere in the tomb. He said, after all of his investigation, wow, check. Then the third E is empty. The tomb was empty. That's not a debate. The question is, what happened to the body? And <laughs> Listen to what is affirmed by Scripture. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead just as he said would happen. So come see where the body used to be lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. And the women went and tell. So here's the question. How did the tomb get to be empty? Tons of stuff he adds to this. I'm just skimming the, the bare surface here. And there are uh, three questions.
questions that it ultimately will boil down to. One, uh, 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 was Jesus' body put in the tomb in the first place? Uh, after research, you found out, okay, yes. Two, did the Roman soldiers remove the body? They wouldn't have done it because it would have undermined their authority. Did the Jewish leaders remove the body? They wouldn't have done it because, because the fact that the body was gone meant that Jesus is professed to be God and it spurs a movement that disempowers them. Uh, some uh, scripture would suggest that they actually paid some people to say, well, his disciples stole the body. But if his disciples stole the body, then historically we know that all the disciples except for John were martyred. And, and they're along with their family and their friends, and it would appear that you wouldn't allow your family and friends to be martyred for a lie that you know is a lie. And so Lee says he had to go, hmm. That was compelling. And then finally, there are the eyewitnesses. Can you say eyewitnesses? And there are tons of eyewitnesses between the Gospels and Acts, and then these eyewitnesses are reinforced by some external sources. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus shows up in crowds. He meets people one-on-one. He shows up at day. He shows up at night. People eat with him. Right. Eyewitnesses. But let me just raise three that was very compelling for, for Lee Strobel's. He said the first thing that was interesting that the scholars told him was that in all of the gospel reports, the women are the first one to find that the tomb are empty, and they're the first one to go and share the good news that Jesus is risen. The scholars pointed out that women were at the lowest point in the, on the cultural rung at that time, right, right next to slaves. Their testimony was never legally allowed in any kind of court context. Didn't count. So anyone who's writing a fictional tale about the resurrection of Jesus would not have repeatedly used women as their witnesses, if you will. Because they would have been immediately discredited because they used women in that cultural context. He said he had to go, hmm. And then the second evidence was that James, the brother of Jesus, and Scripture tells us earlier that Jesus' siblings did not believe that he was God, but James, along with Peter, come to believe that Jesus is God. We have external evidence to support that Jesus is one of the leaders of the Christian church. Now, let me ask you this question. This is what Lee asked himself. What would it take to convince you that your sibling is God. <laughs> it would have to be something really, really extraordinary, <laughs> Lee concludes. <laughs> so he had to go home. But perhaps the most compelling figure is Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, who was literally killing people in the name of purifying the Jewish faith, uh, folk who were following Jesus, this is blasphemy, killing and putting people in jail. The book of Acts tells us about it, and Paul writes about it himself in Galatians. Listen to what he says. Chapter 1, verse 11. He says this. Dear brothers and sisters, listen. I want you to understand that the gospel message that I preach is not based on much human reasoning. No, it isn't. Mm -mm. No. I, he says, received it by direct, there's that word again, revelation from who? Jesus Christ. 
And of course, Acts talks about an encounter that Paul has with Jesus on the road of Damascus that turns his life around. And then he reminds his writers what they already know. Verse 13. You see, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. And yet this one would ultimately become the greatest evangelist for the Christian church, writing most of the New Testament, giving us the basis of our theology. So Lee said when he looked at the four East, it was a Sunday afternoon, with all of the evidence of two years of investigation spread out on this table. He said he had a revelation. When he considered the question, Lee, who do you say Jesus is? Ultimately, he had to say, Jesus, thou the Christ, I'm phrasing it in. Son of the living God, you are God. He said in that moment, not only did he take a step to believe, but then he realized he had to move from believing to receiving. And it literally transformed his life. Listen to him talk about it. And this is always where I would get stuck. Because somebody would say to me, well, Lee, tell me your story. How'd you come to faith? Okay, and I'll tell the whole story up to here. And I wouldn't know what to say. Because what, what, what stuck me was, was, how do I communicate to you? You didn't know me when I was literally drunk in the snow in an alley. You didn't know me when I was living my former life. So what words can I use to help you understand the difference Jesus has made in my life. You see what I'm saying? I, how do I explain that to you? Because you didn't know me back then. And I asked God, what do I say? And the only thing I can say is what happened to my little girl, Allison. Think about this for a second. Here's a little kid, five years old by then, when I came to faith. All she had known the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole life. But starting on that Sunday afternoon when I gave my life to Jesus, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something is new with my dad. She never studied ancient history, never interviewed a scholar, never studied archaeology. She's just five years old. But she could listen, she could watch, she could observe, and she did. She watched how God changed my life. And it took about four or five months. And then one Sunday morning, she came up to Leslie. You know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. I wonder, is that somebody's prayer watching this today? I want God to do for me what he did for Lee. Can I just simply add that what he did for Lee, radically changing his life, he did it for me. I've talked about this just a matter of weeks ago. I was sitting in a country church on a bench called the Mona's Bench. And I had always grown up believing in Jesus. They said to me, if you really believe, you got to leave that bench and go take this chair over in front. And I moved from the bench to the chair. 
And in reflection, what I did was I moved from believing to receiving. Somebody's listening to me today. You believe. But you need to move from believing to receiving. So here's the invitation I want to offer to you. I want to invite you to make that move. And if you've not been baptized, to seal and symbolize that move by allowing us the privilege of baptizing you on November the 18th. If you're in the local Bay Area, if you're not in the local Bay Area, wow, we'd love to help facilitate your baptism wherever you are. Somebody's listening to me. This is your moment to move from believing to receiving and demonstrate that you've made that move by saying yes to baptism. Let me conclude with prayer. God, I thank you for this moment. And for somebody the revelation is they're not ready to believe that you're God, Jesus. But this is the moment that they decide that they're going to try and see what it's like to follow you. For somebody else, well, they are believers. They have received. But this is the moment they make the commitment to begin when they share their story not to leave you out, to share you in their stories. For somebody else, This is the moment to finally say, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the son of the living God. Not only do I believe, I'm ready to receive. Make it so. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.